Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. A great episode for you guys today. That's right. Max Hazen is on the podcast to talk about everything custom bike. And I'm not a bike guy. I've been wanting to talk to Max for a long time since I started following him on Instagram. But like I say in the interview, I think everything he does transcends. Exactly. It, it It's just like I, I would love to have a guy in here that's amazing at doing furniture or design or whatever. I mean, it's really, really interesting that these guys that truly transcend their craft. Correct. I think that Max could probably make, um, if you look at what, for example... Look at what Christopher Rungi is doing with his cars, right? Yeah. He's kind of a similar thing with cars, custom, you know, panel beater. If you haven't looked up Christopher Rungi, you can go find him on, on Instagram. But he made these chairs, right? I saw he, these. he did like a chair study. Yeah. And I feel like Max is one of these guys where if he wanted to build something, he would build it and it would be sweet. You know, oh, and it's just, it would be sweet no matter what it is that he did. And I think that he's a, uh, he's a perfect, perfect example of that. Yeah, and I, I have a quote here. If you don't know who Max Hazen is, in the world of custom bikes, Hazen is considered one of the world's best builders. From his first Pipe Burn Bike of the Year award in 2013, he would go on to win his second. And as a result, his work is recognized globally among custom motorcycle connoisseurs as being a talented visionary with the technical skills to fabricate whatever he envisions. And we go into detail with him about that and his process and how he basically learns by doing trial by error and kind of talks about a lot of that and how he came to be so if you go to his website there's a bike there and it's black and it's got yes. the, the the fenders over the completely covering the wheels now yep, it, it's got the full fender um cover yes yeah i don't know i'm not sure exactly what that's I'm, called i, I, I feel just, embarrassed but okay so it really when i see this car the first thing or this bike the first thing that came to my mind was the bugatti 57 sc atlantic Yes. Now it has I don't a lot know of if that you, streamlined. It's it's, it's Ralph Lauren's car. It's one of the most expensive yep. cars in the world. It's like forty million dollars. And seeing that old Bugatti and its black paint, and you know, I just that whole shape really kind of translated. And that's what popped into my mind when I saw that bike. Um, anyway, we're we'll, uh, we're going to have his interview later. But what have you got for us right now? Yeah, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiast. Each and every month, they carefully select items including tools, desailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all the latest and greatest in the industry, and deliver it right there to your doorstep. There are two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrol Box Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. So before we get uh, Max on, I wanted to tell you that I bought a shipping container. You did? I bought a shipping container. When is this thing going to be here? Tomorrow morning. I've always wanted a shipping container. So when you are listening to this podcast, I am right now organizing my shipping container. Are you able to see the actual container you buy before you purchase it? No. However, I did say I want a blue one. Oh. And he said, yes, I will get you a blue one. Okay. Um, They come come in a bunch of different uh, levels of quality. Like you can get ones that are just like, junk and they leak and everything else they're pretty cheap okay. this one is airtight and watertight oh wow. so it it's completely weather sealed that's cool it is cool and i'm trying to figure out exactly now that i i was like oh i just want to put a car in there right okay. there's there's a car that i'm gonna get and i want to put the car in there for storage and i also want to put my lawnmower in there and get my lawnmower out of the garage because the sense. it's having the lawnmower in the garage is really bad for morale like yeah. garage morale, the the lo- that's even, why I built a shed. Even yeah. though my mower is super sweet and better than yours, I want to have it well, not I have a push in my mower. It's a, yours, yeah, so yes. <laughs> I mean, like, so I don't have to go very far. To do that. Can um, you sit on your mower? Yes. Okay. It's <laughs> Good job. You know when I good for you. When we first moved into this house, which is uh, I think we have like somewhere between two and two and a half acres, okay. we had a push mower because we came from Minneapolis. Yeah, and Jesse was like. I need, I'm like, I need to buy a riding lawnmower. It's like two and a half acres of yard. And she said, no, just use the push mower. <laughs> and I was like, there's no way I'm going to use a push mower. She's like, I want you to try and we can save some money. You can use the push mower. And I'm starting to think, am I fat or something? Why, why, why am I having to do this? So what I did is I'm not a math guy. Like I, I don't do math, but I measured the width of the mower. Right. And then I measured the speed at which I walk and did the math. And it came out to like I don't know, somewhere between four and six hours of push mowing. <laughs> and she said, okay, you can buy a mower. So anyway. Did you ever attempt to do any part Hell of no. Absolutely you, wow, not. Yeah, no way. No 
no, not a chance in hell I was going to be push mowing two acres. No way. <laughs> not in my worst disaster uh, horror dreams. Anyway, so I got this shipping container coming on Monday. It's going to be blue. I'm trying to figure out where to put it, where it will be least offensive. Right. But then I started well, you thinking. put it behind your garage, right? I know. Yes. But um, my well is right there. So my oh. well sticks up right in that spot. So well, I don't know if they're going to be able to finagle it in there. But it needs to be level, too. And my whole yard is downslope very slightly so i've got this i've got a couple level spots and then i so i'm like okay i want to start hanging stuff in here maybe i can like hang rubber tubes and and wire and and stuff i don't use very often so i bought all these 150 pound neomidium magnet hooks (laughs) that i'm gonna put on the ceiling that i should be able to hang stuff from 150 pound magnets it's gonna be awesome so i'm gonna be able to hang those from the ceiling and i should be able to hang like maybe some body panels how do you get those magnets off uh, I think you just use a pliers and you can turn them. Okay. Because the, the sheer, like if you put them on the wall, it's only 50 pounds. Okay. Because you yeah. pull them down. I which, see what you You know, mean. you use uh, leverage to get them off. Yeah. But I should be able to, uh, you know, hang whatever I want in there. Maybe. <laughs> I'm just imagining my wife sounds, is really, she's is really into true crime. So I'm imagining know, that this shipping that container is going to be full of dead bodies. Um, <laughs> but then I go, okay. Well, it's weather. Now I'm fantasizing yes. about, okay, I could put a workbench in there and I could put up, like I could put some windows and have a, an entry door and I could have like a little well, metal now workshop. you're building a tiny house. I know. And now I'm, <laughs> and I, and I told my wife she could build a greenhouse on top of it. She's like, oh, that's a great idea. Cause then the, we have deer constantly yeah. and they come and eat everything. Oh yeah. So we could put a greenhouse on top. The deer would never be able to get to it and we could paint it and we could do, um, what's that, what's that paint that they'd used to do in ships back? in the day where it's this camouflage paint yeah you know what i'm talking about Do you know what it's called i don't know what it's called anyway i want to paint that on the side and make it really cool looking that is the opposite of like actually blending into anything i know it would really stick out but it should the blue should match my house anyway so i'm now i'm fantasizing about all these th- different things but if so but if i put a lawnmower in there i'm moving the bad morale to the the shipping container and i don't want the bad morale in my my cool little shipping container metal shop so i don't know I might have to get another shipping container. (laughs) (laughs) So then I can have a a cool shipping container, and then uh, this is the junk shipping container. I don't know. You're just going to have a backyard full of shipping containers now. Oh, I could stack the shipping containers. Well, yeah, you need to stack them, obviously. They're made to be stacked. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I could angle them, and then I could put, like, then you could have... And then um, you just put the tin roof on them, and all of a sudden you get a whole other building. Yeah, if you angle it, like, uh, perpendicular, you have, like, a T-shape, and you could put pillars, Uh and then you could have an under... A spot where things could be parked under. Oh. You could do like a tin roof. Yep. And you could have like a little lean-to thing where you could I could park the mowers outside. So you're just building a pole barn now. Oh, man. Well, the pole barns are easy. They're boring. <laughs> they cost like $15,000, $20,000. thing was $1,900 delivered. That is Which cool. is awesome. Yeah. You can't build a shed for that much. No. All right. I'm really, really excited about having Max on. Um, here's our interview with Max Hazen from uh, Hazen Motorworks. Max, man, how's it going? Doing good. I've got Jake, my co-host, here with me. Hi, Max. Hey, how's it going? Good. I've been uh, wanting to talk to you for quite some time. I've been following you on Instagram uh, since oh, the thanks. early years. So I'm excited for this. Oh, cool. Cool, man. Thank you. He's the he's the real bike guy of... Um, well, and of us. But of us, yes. That's not saying much. I've had a few bikes over the years, but... Uh, I, for me, my only motorcycle experience is wiping out at a dirt bike at like <laughs> the nine. age of twelve. Yeah, I was like, I was actually like nine, I think, as I my yeah. Week. I'd I'd say like seventy percent of people who have like yeah you know, eaten. First of all, it's it's swearing not allowed. Oh, you oh, can 100%. yeah yeah we can talk about eating shit. That's fine. <laughs> uh, okay, I was I was like you know I, I don't know how else to say that. I, I was trying to think of something else to fit. No, nope, I was like no, I, like the first time you eat shit, it's usually on a dirt bike. Oh man, it was brutal, and it was it was on uh, it was in a gravel driveway. Oh, it's always gravel. I was in sh- like jean shorts and barefoot and everything else. It was this thing yeah. my buddy and I had. It was shoved in his garage, and we were like, <laughs> we spent like all afternoon just like kickstarting it over and over and over again, trying to get this thing that didn't run around. We got it run, drove it around, wiped out, and then I never touched bikes again. But the reason I wanted to talk with you is because I have this. I think there's this transcendent thing with what you do. You know, it's it's. It goes beyond bikes, the the art and the beauty and the craftsmanship and the artwork of what you do and the engineering that you do um, transcends, you know, transcend, oh, oh, in, in my opinion, you. it transcends transportation um, even. I think it, uh, I think it's really, really that good. Um, well, no, thank you. First of all, I'm flattered. But, you know, I'll be honest with you. I always thought that, like, success is 
having anyone be able to appreciate what you do. You don't have to know what you're looking at. You don't have to be a Vincent guy and recognize that's a period correct part or something. You just got to walk up to it and be like, wow, that's cool. I mean, I've had you know experiences where I've walked up to things and I don't know, it's, it's a machine of some sort. And I'm like, I have no idea what that does, but I'm like, that is cool. And that's the goal. That's what I try and do every time. Yeah, I think that you can recognize that in any in furniture. You can recognize it. I in know design. nothing about sewing machines, but you can look at some of those old vintage sewing machines and say, "Yeah, yeah that's really cool." Yeah, what I, what I find unique about motorcycles is that they're in my mind. We're in this constant battle where we're you know we do news episodes and we're talking about like autonomous cars and all this stuff. I feel like motorcycles are something that um, because you have to, they demand to be driven. That they'll never truly be autonomized. Autonomized? Mm-hmm. That's not a word. That's not a word. Made up a word. They'll never be autonomous. And I hope it's something that never gets taken away from us. And I, but I think it's going to be the last vestige of your pure driving. Eventually, will be the motorcycle, whether it's it's electric or not. Um, and it, that's really inspiring. And I was wondering if you remember the first time uh, you you were inspired by riding a motorcycle. What was the first? you know, experience that really were like, you're like, wow, this is freedom. This is, this is amazing. You know, it's funny. I, I don't actually remember it. I just always remember feeling that on a motorcycle. Cause I, I could actually ride uh, a motorcycle before I could ride a bicycle. I mean, I was real little <laughs> okay. and um, the, like the whole pedaling thing threw me off. And <laughs> when I got, I got on a 50 CC bike and it worked, but um, I don't know what it was, but ever since I was a little kid, I just was fascinated with, with dirt bikes. Really. That was what I was fascinated with at the time. And then, and then it evolved, but um, yeah, it, it, there was no like single moment where I was like, "Oh, this is motorcycle." I think a lot of people have a story where they like they see like a biker gang go by and they're like, "Whoa, that's crazy!" And for me, it was just always I just love motorcycles, and um, yeah, I, I rode a bunch, you know, growing up till I was about like fifteen, and then um, you know, living in New York, there wasn't there wasn't much riding to do, and then yeah, I went to college and did all that and got a job and just kind of forgot about it, and then. You know, I, then all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, I miss having a motorcycle. And so I went and bought another one. Was it your dad that got you, though, the little 50cc thing? Or was he into bikes when you were a kid? How did you end up with the first? The so first actually, bike? so yeah, so, so my parents split up when I was little. And so it was um, my mom. I think she was trying to make like their house seem sweeter. So her <laughs> and my stepdad got me one because they knew I was just obsessed with them. And, um, and my dad, my dad grew up. He had a bunch of bikes. And but, you know, by the time I was born, they were all gone. And he was actually like very against me getting uh, a road bike. And so I actually went behind his back and borrowed some money from my grandmother to buy my first motorcycle when I was, I think, 19. And that was the first time I rode on the street. <laughs> what and, what um, was that bike? So it's, it's actually a bike I'm working on right now. Um, I, it was a Buell. And I bought it and I put nitrous on it and I blew up the engine. Oh, and, yes. And so, but I mean, it went it went for a minute before it blew up. And uh, <laughs> anyway... <laughs> It sat, it sat in his garage for the last 15 or more years. I tried to make something out of it. I tried to put it back together and put a turbo. I had to try to do something stupid. And this is before I was doing anything with motorcycles, you know, for a living or like, you know, n- knowing what I was doing. And it just sat there for the last 15 years leaking oil. And I was shipping a bike out from New York for a client. And my dad's like, hey, you know, you mind getting this out of here? And so he sent it over and I thought, oh my God, you know, I always wanted to make something out of this. So I'm actually, you know, working on that right now. And so... Now it's it's done it's done right and it's got a turbo on it. And I just tested it last week and it's running about twenty pounds of boost and <laughs> it's, it's nuts. It's yeah. How does it I feel mean, to I, build I, something for yourself? It's weird. Um, I, I tried to do it um, a few years ago. I built a KTM Supermoto thing. It was a thousand cc Supermoto bike and yeah, I made it real nice and clean. And I owned it for a week and someone bought it. Right. So this one, I, I feel like I need to hang on to it for a little while. Yeah, for sure. So what was the first bike that you ever made? This the first bike project that you had. Um, you know, so I got back into riding when I was uh, I was living in New York. I don't know, maybe it's like you know, twelve years ago, ten years ago, and um, I crashed and I was injured for a while. And so I, the first bike I actually made, I motorized a bicycle. I was just bored. I couldn't walk. I was sitting in my apartment, and so I motorized this bicycle. And then I went to my dad's shop, and like he had a welder, and I did a few little things to it, but. Um, yeah, I think actually I, I did that, and then I built another motorized bicycle from scratch. And it was like a, it was like a three fifty or something like that. And um, and then I realized like I was just really learning how to walk again. Wait, a three hundred and fifty cc bicycle? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it was sketchy. It was. Did you still have like handbrakes and stuff with the little rubber pads? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, that's, and that's um, terrifying. anyway, so I, I'm just learning how to walk again. I'm like, all right, this is stupid. Now you, the bike will go like sixty, and you're on like little skinny tires. And so I bought a. Um, just a cheap motorcycle. And I, I built, you know, I built a frame and 
did that. And anyway, I had no plan on building motorcycles for a living. I was just having fun during my time off work. You know, I was just, you know, physical therapy and all that stuff. And then, you know, and then I, and you know, that one was like sort of like a mix of parts. And um, was that the yeah, XS650, Max? It was actually it was actually the one before the XS650. And then then I bought an XS650 motor and you know built a custom bike with that. And then one thing led to another, and I'm like, okay, now I'm really I'm having fun now. And so I'm like, I always wanted to build a custom bike. So then I you know started buying you know cheap motorcycles, whatever I could afford at the time, because I was still working, and was just doing it on nights and weekends. And then. Um, I sold those and I sold them for like a good amount of money from a, the clothing store. I had them in the window and I didn't think anything of it. I just thought I'm like, okay, finally, you get a hold of make... the clothing store guy. Was it a buddy of yours or how did they end up in the window? Actually, it was, um, a good friend of mine's uncle lived in Malibu. I was still living in New York and he was talking to this guy who owned this, this clothing store, like right in the center of Malibu. And, and he is like, he always displayed motorcycles and he's like, he saw a photo of it and he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, ship it out here and I'll try and sell it. And he sold it in like a week. And he sold the next one before he even got it in the store. And I was like, wow, that was cool. And so my dad was the one who kind of pulled me aside and was like, hey, I think you got something going here. And he gave me the nudge. And I was like, dad, I, I can't make a living doing it. He's like, you know what? Take a year. Because, you know, I, I had a company in New York and I was miserable. I just like I was just working all the time. And and um, anyway, yeah, he, I was like, are you, are you serious? You know, my dad was always tough and I couldn't believe it. He's like, yeah, he's like, if you go broke, you know, we'll, we'll help you. You're not going to be on the street. But um Anyway, he was the one who said, you know, just go full time on it. And if it doesn't work in a year, then you go back to work. And um, so that, yeah, that was, that was the key, you know, it was just time, having enough time to really build a bike, you know, because everyone, everyone that I know is you're always doing it after work on the weekends of, you know, what you can pull together. And yeah. Anyway, so what, was, were you, I, what were you doing for a, a vocation before you made that leap? So I had a contracting company in Manhattan and, um, but I would also do the design and, you know, I'd actually like drop all the plans and stuff myself. So I'd, it was it was a grind, man. Because being a small company in New York City is tough. Because you're still paying all of the you know, workers' compensation, all the insurances that you are as a bigger company. But so and so your margins are tight. And um, yeah, just doing construction in Manhattan is a rough grind, man. <laughs> I yeah, I was working for myself, but man, I was I was not happy. So you certainly had some background in design and drafting these things up. But when it came to building these bikes, the actual welding, the machining, do you have any professional training with that, or is that all self-taught? Hundred percent self-taught, man, and and you know, people always ask me that. They're like, "Well, you know, where did you learn how to?" I'm like, "I'm still figuring it out, man." <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, I just you know, it's just applying common sense. And then I've got some friends who are trained machinists, you know, bike builders, you know, and um, I can always kind of pick their brains a little bit when it comes to like doing some more complex operations, like you know, what do the knobs on this machine do? And you know, <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, of course, you've probably made a lot of mistakes and things didn't work. And oh they, yeah. Yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, I think people think that, you know, I'm just like this, like savant. I'm like, I just don't post the mistakes. That's all. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't show you the failures. I just well, make it look like I don't show you that. Like if I don't like a photo, I'm not going to show it to you. You know, I'll just yeah, delete exactly. it. It's gone. The secret of social media. Yeah. So I'm, oh, yeah. I'm interested, Max, because, you know, you started doing this out in New York and that's not really what people think of as kind of like the custom bike building Mecca. At least that's not what comes to mind to me. And I remember reading that you actually started out doing this in a small office building. How did that affect your process or do you have any stories from that time? Yeah. So, um, you know, I was enjoying doing the bikes so much that I decided to get a little space close to my apartment because I didn't want to have to like drive all the way out to my dad's house, you know, and use, he is a wood shop at his place. So I got this tiny little like shoebox place. It wasn't so much, it's an office building now, but, um, then it was kind of like, it was a warehouse you know, like a, just a huge warehouse on the East river. And, uh, and it was kind of desolate at the time. And it, I swear, as soon as I signed the lease, then like, it just became trendy. Um, but, the th and so a lot of these, there was like creative studios and production companies and all that stuff. And you could hear everything. So I couldn't make a lot of noise. So and the rent went through uh, the roof. Yeah. It went from a dollar a square foot. When I was, when I first got there, it's $5 a square foot. Now. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, I mean, it's probably a good thing I moved to California, but, um, yeah, it, that was something like I couldn't I couldn't use certain tools. Everyone's like, oh, you know, you got to try using a power hammer or something. And I'm like, no, nah, I can't do it, man. So all the metal shaping had to be quiet. So are you using like so, a beanbag with a Delrin hammer or what are you doing at that time? No, no, no. That, that was too loud. So um, it was just a me yeah, yeah, metal shrinker and an English wheel. And that was it. Um, now, is that knew, still kind of the process you're, you've brought through and still using today or are you you change it up? Yeah, actually, actually, that's that's 90 percent of it. I mean, every now and then. Yeah, you got to use a hammer and and a dolly or a hammer and like a, you know, I use a rubber pad and stuff like that to shape the stuff. But 
Um, I usually don't go at it like, you know, when you used to see the biker build up stuff on Discovery Channel where they just have like a bag and a hammer and they just start wailing on it. Right. Because uh, you know, the one thing is like a lot of my stuff is polished and you have to have a lot of control of the material, especially if you have to make a perfect mirror image of the other side. And so just wailing on it with a hammer, usually you're going to wind up with two different sides. Um, I mean, you can do it to kind of rough the shape out, but eventually you got to get in there with, with the wheel and, um, you know, some, it's, it's preference. I mean, I like to use a shrinker too. And um, it gives you a lot of control, so you can wind up with two, you know, perfect halves. Well, it sounds like the the impetus of learning. You were kind of forced into like doing things a certain way, and once you learn, you're just going to stick with that because that's what you know. Yeah, and the one thing is, everything for me has always been trial and error. And so the cool thing is that I also, you know, it's like a lot of people get trained one way, and they don't realize that there's like four other ways to do it, or that like there's there's certain there's reasons why you can't do those things. And so I always learn the hard way, but you feel like you learn more. So your bikes look beautiful to me, but I also mean beautiful in a functional sense. And mm-hmm. a lot of the bikes that I see out there, like custom bikes and stuff, they just look ridiculous. They're, <laughs> they're not functional. They don't look like they would work. They look like they'd be absolutely awful to drive or ride, I guess I, I should say. Where, where do you get your inspiration for your concepts where that you have this, this functional sense to these things? You know, I, I always thought of that whole form function thing. And I, I think that things that were designed to be, if it's aerodynamic or you know, if it's a race bike or something they usually wind up looking good anyway. Um, things that are functional just look good. Um, now, if you're talking about like, you know, bikes that are horrible to ride and stuff like that, most of those custom bikes that I build are just extremely uncomfortable. Like there's no, <laughs> no way around that. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't try and sugarcoat. I'm like, yeah, it's got like a tiny thin wood seat or something like that. I'm like, but that, that was just the form there. Um, but you know, they all work. And for, for a while, a lot of people, you know, didn't believe it. like, Oh no, that'll never work. I'm not, and I'm like, it did. I've already ridden it like a lot, you know, it's, it rides fine. Um, you know, but um, yeah, that, that's they're built with. Um, there's not a whole lot of compromise in mind. You know, I I want it to look and the proportions to be a certain way. And so you start with like the general shape, and you you want it to be a coherent piece, and then you work backwards from there. Okay, how can I engineer it to work and still look like that? And one thing I love about a lot of your bikes and your designs are all these details that I have to imagine go unnoticed 90% of the time. And I'm sure it took you probably more time than the rest of the bike. Some of the details that come to mind, my favorite are like the iron head, not to mention the musket where you have the twin front cylinders simply for the sole reason of making the lines flow better. Had that ever been done before? And what, what did that take to do? So, you know, it, it actually was done. Um, you know, the, the Vincent actually had it, uh, two front cylinders, um, you know, that, that's how they came. But um, then like Harley race bikes, they used to use two front cylinders so you could have two carbs and tune the cylinders individually. Um, Cause you know, your front cylinder would run a little cooler cause it's getting more air. But um, I just always thought it looked like super sexy. And so I'll just say, okay, I'm gonna build a bike with two front cylinders. I have no idea how, but <laughs> yeah. like, I know that like, I'm gonna figure it out. And so, you know, I just take it apart. And you know, a, a perfect example is um, this guy came over from, I think it was Germany. And he's like, yeah, I always wanted to do two front cylinders, but the the cam shop isn't they won't get back to me with, with the new cams and i was like you don't need new cams they're on an iron head they're all the same you just there's four cams you just need to rotate the rear two the right amount of degrees and it'll run oh, no and kidding. he was just yeah he was just blown away and i was like i just because i just bought an engine and i just opened it up and started cutting stuff and you know figured it out and um yeah it actually the iron head it's, it's not that hard to to convert but some of the other ones are i just i did a knucklehead and that one was a little more involved um but yeah and you know what it's Pick what you want to do and then figure out how to do it. And yeah, there's always a way. It's just sometimes it's a little harder than other times. What was the hardest challenge that you have had to overcome with? You wanted something to be a certain way and it was just fighting you the entire way. Was there anything that came up like that? Well, you know, I think the one of the more challenging projects was this land speed bike I built um, where we used a Modus engine, which is an American V4 touring bike. It's made in Alabama and or was made. And um, the idea was that I was going to build a bike using their engine and you know, they would, they weren't going to be a sponsor, but I would send them the bike when it was done and they could basically reprogram the ECU to do all this stuff. Cause I have no experience with that, but they went out of business. And, you know, I think when they filed bankruptcy, their tech company, like it, it was kind of left bad. And so I had to figure out how to, I bought like a, like an ECU and learn how to program that whole thing and then tuning it. And it was, it was turbo also. And that was just like, that was learning something that was just so far outside of my comfort zone. But that was, that was cool. That was, um, that was definitely the least profitable project I've ever had. And then, I, and then I had to go and run it at Bonneville and it was like this lay down. Hold on. Speed. I don't want to get too ahead of Bonneville. I got a whole section on Bonneville. I really want to get into oh, Okay. Bonneville. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, anyway, <laughs> don't worry. That, don't was, worry. That, that, that was the hardest project. Um, 
there was that. And then there was, um, there's been a couple of bikes where I've just had to like learn some, some skills of metal shaping and had to fail for like two weeks straight at like, cause it's gotta be perfect. You know, it's gotta be polished or something. And, um, yeah, anyway, you, the, ever, those you ever just go home and just fuck it. I'm out. I can't, or do you just push through and do it anyway? got to be bad most days. of the time i mean yeah you know if it's close enough to the end of the day sometimes i'm just like okay you know i don't have it in the tank right now like i'm not going to redo this and i'll just go home does it haunt you, know, you if, when you hit the pillow <laughs> when you hit the pillow oh yeah yeah i mean it's just i mean usually i have to come home and just like just make like make it make a stiff drink or something like that just to just, <laughs> just otherwise you're not gonna be able to sleep it's funny i was describing to chris before we started recording here how i remember seeing something you were working on a front fork for one of the projects and i can't imagine how many hours you have into this thing you get it all machined all fabricated up polished finished you get it up on the jig and i'm pretty sure you decided you didn't like it after the fact or something to that end i mean does that happen yeah. a lot or yeah yeah actually i just made a wheel last week and the bike was done um it's this twin engine thing that i did it and that happened with the front wheel too and I made the front Jeez. wheel and the front, that, that was probably about two grand to make that front wheel. And I just stared at it. I'm like, no, that's totally wrong. So, you know, just uh, changed the design, made something else. And then, yeah, same thing happened with the rear wheel. I was actually talking to the client. He's like, that front wheel looks so sick. He's like, what do you think about the rear? And I'm like, I know I should make a crust custom rear wheel. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, that was last week. And, you know, you know, a few thousand dollars later, and, you know, I, I just always say, I'm like, I'm not, I'm sure there's, you know, pretty much any other job I could probably make more money at. But, um, you know, I'm doing this because I like to push myself and I like to I like to you know make the wildest thing I can make. Because, you know, I don't know how many times you're going to get a client that will just come to you and be, be like, you know, make whatever you want. You know, make the wildest thing you can think of. So, I, I you know. Is I it harder to project. do that or is it harder to, to work with a, with a client that wants to have a ton of input on the bike? So, I actually don't um, work with clients that want to have a ton of input. You know, I... <laughs> I, you know, I tell That's them, the like, to go. you know, we come up with a general idea. Like, do you want a bike in this style? Like, how much you want to ride it? Do you want to go fast? Do you want to do this? You know, or is there like a certain bike that I built that you really like? And then uh, I'm not going to build the same thing twice, but if I, I get that feel. And so, you know, he, this guy actually like liked one of the bikes that I built. And I was like, okay, cool. I, I'll figure something out. And it's kind of hard. It's always a tough sell to get someone to like fork over a big check. And he says to you, he's like, all right, so what do you have in mind? And you're like, I don't know, you know, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always wondered then too, along those lines, do you start a project of a bike with a vision of what it's going to be? Or do you start with the power plant and that kind of dictates the design vice versa? How does that all come together? Uh, once in a while, I'll have like a, a general idea. I'm like, okay, I know like when I, I built a bike with like a totally enclosed rear wheel and I, I just did a quick sketch of something. I've been thinking about it for a long time. Usually I don't draw the bikes. Um, but, um, yeah, a lot of the time what I do is I'll just get the engine and, you know, mount the engine at whatever height I feel like it should be mounted at and just get, if it's the tires or whatever, and just lay them or lay stand them up on this table. And I put a big sheet of aluminum behind it, which works as like a dry erase board. And then you can start filling it in full scale. And, you know, and then from there, you can just start building your frame. And it's, it's pretty wild because uh, at the end you have this, if I still have the, you know, the sheet of aluminum and I haven't, you know, used it to build the bike with it. Um, it literally just fits exactly into that drawing when it's done. But yeah, there's a lot of wing in it. You know, there's a lot of just, you know, just, just stare at it until you get an idea and then go with that. What's unique about building motorcycles versus hot rods in, you know, cars versus bikes. I mean, what, what's, what's special about you do versus what's special about what they do. You know, there's not, there's not a whole lot of, a lot of difference. It's just, it's like. They just have to do a lot more. I think it's it's really similar. It's just like they have a lot more work involved, and you need more space, and you need more money. And I th uh, like a bike, a bike is easy. I th well, I think what's unique about a bike is you get to do everything yourself. When you have a car, and you're building a, a car usually and a hot you have rod, to start from something. You start from something. Plus, there's usually more than just you involved. You got a body guy, you got an engine guy, you got a, a fabricator guy, you got a guy with upholstery a upholstery guy, you know, upholstery guy. There's so much more involved. But we're, with this bike, you have complete control over the entire process and it looks exactly yeah. how you want it to look in the end. Well, the one other thing, too, is that a lot of the stuff um, in a car is hidden, you know, and because you most times you, you've got a body and I guess some old roadsters, you can see everything. But on a bike, usually everything's on display and it's cool because. You, know, you get to dabble in everything that you would do in a car, except for, I mean, even a pulse here, I guess, but, um, you know, it's just a dabble and you, but you get to do everything how you want to do it. And, um, yeah. And it's, like I said, it's, it's a lot less expensive. 
It takes less time. You know, I think that I, I see some of these low riders here. It's Sunday here. We were just out. I was out with my wife and, you know, there's low riders everywhere. And these guys, I mean, this, they spend like 20 years making these things. And it's just, right. it's just too much for me. Like you something know, like will be engraved. Like, it's like, well, that probably took about 77 hours to engrave that <laughs> date and center yeah. cap. Yeah, exactly. I know for me, I just, I just like to get the idea out. And, you know, sometimes I feel like each bike is, you know, there's certainly, I'm getting a little carried away now like with what's possible. I'm like, oh, well, you know, you find your friend that has a CNC machine. Like, oh, well, he, if he machines off the first 200 pounds of this aluminum, then I can make this wheel, you know, because before it's just like, I'm like, I, I, I don't have the time to do it. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, um, is it challenging like, I, I mean, to compete with yourself? Yeah. I, I honestly, like I'm the worst boss for myself <laughs> because it, um, yeah, cause I know in my head, there's a lot of things that would be good enough. And then I have to keep reminding myself, I don't even have to remind myself. I just can't live with it unless, uh, unless I, I don't, I don't feel satisfied unless I knew I pushed myself beyond my comfort zone. And that's, it's, it's a weird thing to do to, to always be in the unknown. And, um, yeah, but you know, it, it makes it worth it at the end of the day. Like, that's why I look back on each bike and I can just, I can see the progression where like, you're learning as you go. So speaking of the unknown, have you thought about doing an electric bike? Was anybody yeah, it's asked? Funny. I, you know, people have asked me if I would, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd, I'd love to. It's just, you know, there's not enough time in the day right now, but um, yeah, definitely. I don't know anything about how they work, like the, like the details of, but I feel like batteries are the thing that's, that's evolving really fast. Right. And so I think I feel like every couple of years, like they come out with like, you know, the new technology, more power, it's smaller. And um, the one thing I feel like with the electric bikes is, if I built an electric bike, I would just build, you know, something crazy because everyone tries to build something that still resembles a normal bike. Like, well, the engine has to fill this much space and there has to be a gas tank and fenders. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you just kind of looked at a complete blank slate, I mean, I think you build something pretty cool. Well, that's when you look at the, what is the Harley thing? The live wire, right? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. It, yeah. it still looks exactly like a Harley. Even the <laughs> fins on the, underneath the tank, it looks like it could, or where the battery yeah. goes, could be an engine if you're not looking close enough. And it just you know, seems like funny. a wasted it, opportunity. You know, I mean, it, it's it's not a bad bike, but I, people have asked me about like, well, what do you think about Harley Davidson and what they're doing? I was like, you know, I think they need to keep their, they should have like two different lines. Like they should exactly. have their classic classic bikes. So they, they're like, well, they don't want to alienate their their core um, clientele. I'm like, well, the thing is, you're going to have to. They're going to have to separate them. You know, like, like, yeah, make your Harley FLH heritage, whatever, and you know, that's for the, that's for the people that want that. And then you have your other line of the, of the new bikes and when you don't have to try and mix them a little bit, you know, you can kind of just start make a race bike, you know, that's with an overhead cam. So if it'll only race they against... had another brand oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> that they yeah. could have used to do this. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, with the, um, with the electric bikes, I'd love to try, I'd love to try, you know, one out. I mean, I think that they're going to make them like stupid powerful real soon. Yeah, I mean, the limit is just going to be the tire at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the full <laughs> limit of just being able to accelerate. Yeah. So what drew you to Bonneville? What was the, I mean, you, you're building these beautiful bikes, you're doing all these things, and then all of a sudden you want to go 245 miles an hour. I mean, what's what happened? So actually, I was building another bike for a client that I built a bunch for. This guy, Bobby Haas, who owns this uh, Haas Museum in Dallas. And, you know, all the bikes were just, you know, beautiful, polished, you know, show pony things that sit there. Um, he just wanted to do another project. And I was like, well, I have an idea because I went to Bonneville the year before with a friend of mine and we just, we just ran his Ducati and um, it was fun. You know, it's a, it was a stock 1198. And I think it's crazy how much um, like power the salt eats up because you lose a lot of traction and even like a stock 1198, I think wide open, like pinned, it ran like 172. And, um, so anyway, I was like, it was cool, but it wasn't, it was a stock bike and it was like, no, I mean, there's, I guess there was no real danger. I Were mean, there fantasizing was fantasizing about it while you're there. You're just standing on the salt. Going, I was, oh my yeah, God, I this, was like, this thing needs a turbocharger yeah. <laughs> and needs full fairing. It needs. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, we get the idea to do this and originally it was supposed to be like this big documentary. And then eventually we just decided, like, let's just build the bike. And, um, yeah, so I started from scratch, you know, just started with the engine. I knew I wanted a turbo. And um, anyway, the bike was like super long. I talked to some guys who were, you know, land speed racers. And uh, one of the guys actually just passed away recently at, um, at Speedway. He, this guy, Ralph Hudson, he's a legend. And he's the guy who he's run the fastest on a sit on motorcycle ever. He ran 307 on his GSXR 1000. I say GSXR 1000, it's got like 600 horsepower. Jesus and um, wow. yeah, yeah. And anyway, so 
you know, I ran some of these ideas that I had for the bike past them. And they're like, the guys who were real good, they're, they're not uptight with their knowledge. And they're like, yeah, cool, man. I, I like it. And, and I, I wanted to make the bike sexy too. That's, I have to, hold, I hold on. Re- that, that's unique. What you said right there, they're, they're open with their knowledge. That's not, right. that's not always no, yeah. the case when it comes to any kind of motorsport. That's unique. No, and I, I, yeah. And I'm used to riding at the track and everyone's like, you know, super guarded. And it's like, it's like a pissing contest of like, yeah. well, I have, I have this suspension set up and you can't run that tire pressure. And, you know, and Bonneville, it's like, yeah, come over here. Let me show you this. And it, like, there's no competition there. It's like, it's the nicest group of people. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I built this bike and the thing was, it was super laid down. And, um, I mean, I think with the fairing on, it was almost 10 feet long, which it would proportionally, it looks fine in photos, but getting it, I'm, I'm on the second floor of a, of a warehouse building downtown and getting it like through the door and in the elevator. And it was just, it was such a bitch to test. And I had to test it on the street because I had nowhere to go. Jeez. And so, and the other thing is like these things, like the handlebars are basically straight back and they're, you have no, like no turning radius whatsoever. Um, but anyway, I did, the part was, I, the part I didn't realize is that it was great on pavement, but I couldn't control it on the salt. Like it would just, it would go, it would slide around and it had about 300 horsepower at the crank. And, um, yeah, it was just, it, it was the scariest thing I've ever ridden. Cause I just felt so like just powerless on this thing and you get it going. So I, I wanted to run, I think my goal was to run like 230, you know, 235. I thought I'm like, that's, that, that sounds good. The record was only 180 cause it's a push rod motor. And, uh, you know, I got it going and why do you think I'm, anybody hadn't gone after that, that record? It was just, there's so many different classes and it just happened to fall in a class where it was a push rod engine and it was a certain CC, it was 1650 CC. And, um, you know, I just, no one had really gone in that class. And it also, because it's a push rod engine, now you don't have the people with like the turbo Hayabusa's and all that stuff making crazy power. It's usually a Harley. And, and I, so I thought I saw in your class, you have to be able to see the, the, the rider from almost all yeah, angles, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because the next class up from that is a streamliner, where you're just in like a tube, and uh, that must have affected your design process hugely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it was funny because I actually I, I would stuff um, like like it's a, it's a it's a garment factory where my shop is, and so they have all this all these patterns they throw away, which is basically just some sort of paper. I would stuff the suit full of paper and just put the suit on on the motorcycle <laughs> as like a mannequin, <laughs> and I, I would I made the fairing around that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, they're, they're pretty strict with the rules there, but, um, yeah, it was, that was another thing too, is you feel super vulnerable. I've never been, you're basically kind of in it with cutouts and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, on, on the last day, I finally got it to, to stop sliding and to go somewhat straight. And I got, I got it to about two seventeen, and, um, then I, I pulled into impound cause I qualified for the record and, and the guy's like, oh man, just, just go again. And you can, you can definitely, I'm like, dude, I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, this thing is trying to kill me. I got to be at my sister's wedding in two days. I was marrying her. I got a kid on the way and the bike's paid for. <laughs> right. Like so, the bike, the bike is paid for. I'm like, nothing but bad things can happen from running this again. So tell us and, a little bit about the physical, physical experience of riding that bike. So you got, got some guys push starting you. Tell us kind of what's going through your mind and what, and what it feels like. So, um, like I said, the bike was turbo. And so there's not a whole lot of grip at Bonneville. It's, it's a really slippery surface. And so you really can't get on the boost until you're in like fifth or sixth gear. Um, the one thing I didn't realize is that the airflow was so good over the top of the bike. I think it's usually, um, you got turbulent airflow over a bike, you know, it, you have a windshield to kind of, you know, get, break it over your head. But, uh, with this smooth flow, I didn't realize the amount of lift it was generating on my head. So I, I could, I was like, I had to use all my neck muscles to just keep my head like below the windshield and um and, and then don't you also like i've you know i built most of the stuff that the, that the bike's running on like from the fuel system to all this and so you're trying to look down at this air fuel meter the whole time like i eventually just took the gps i'm like i can't have anything else to look at like, you're trying to look at these gauges making sure the engine's happy and at the same time kind of glancing and making sure you're still in the lines and um every time the, the bike would kind of get like a little wobble going but it was on the last run that this this wobble started to happen and my hands hit the fairing. And then I realized that if I kind of twisted my hands out a little bit, I could brace the handlebar against the fairing. And then I got it to go straight. I only had like a mile left or something. And I went, or I don't know if it was, it was about a mile. And I went from like 190 to 217 in that, in that little bit. Um, the bike could definitely go a lot faster. It's just like, I don't scare that easily on a bike. And like, I was terrified of that thing. I'm like, just take it away from me. Like put it in the museum. I'm like, I'm done. So what caused, like, from a physics perspective, what caused that wobble or that, that inconsistency? You know, it was, um, it had rained right before, 
um, I got to Bonneville. And the thing is, you're in uh, at the event I was at. It's cars and bikes. So you're a lot of times running behind these. Like a lot of the cars, they're they're super heavy because it makes them more stable, and you actually get more traction because there's no there's no downforce. And so um, you wind up with these like you know thousand plus horsepower cars, wheels spinning all the way down the track, and they leave ruts. And you know on a on a regular bike. It's easy, you know. You have, you're up and you have leverage, and they're a little more stable. Um, but yeah, I'd get in these ruts, and then it would try and self-correct. And you know, to be honest with you, I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. If I hadn't knew, I would have fixed it. And I was just like, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it, it could have been like a, a steering geometry thing, but I mean, I you know erred on the side of stable, making everything on that bike. So I wasn't exactly sure. But um, yeah, it was just it was you know really uncomfortable. Would you do it again? Or are you all done with the with the top speeds? You know, I think now I'm I'm good right now. I'm good. Um, <laughs> yeah, with with the Bonneville thing. The other thing too is um, I don't know if it's from being in being from New York or something, but you know, Bonneville. It's you know, God bless them, but it's run by like a really old group of people, and they do things at like an archaically slow pace. So you wind up waiting in line to run. You sit for like, you know, it could be four hours to you know eight hours. You sit in line. You know, your bike's in the van to do one run. And then you realize like, Oh, you know, like, you know, the boost controller wasn't working and then you got to go back. And, and so, you know, they could just kind of, everybody doesn't know how hot it is. It's hot. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, you wait and you wait until you're about like 10 minutes out to put your suit on. And it's like, you're standing on, on a mirror cause it's white. So you're just basically scorched. (laughs) But I mean, the one cool thing is, especially if you're, if you're a gearhead, the stuff that people make in their backyards, like, you know, these streamliners and there's, there's cars going 500 miles an hour that are wheel driven, like piston powered. Wow. And yeah, I was blown away. I think there's one I called the speed demon and yeah, piston powered. I mean, force induction, like crazy stuff, but it's wheel driven and they went over 500 miles an hour this year. It's just, yeah, it's just, if you're a, if you're a gearhead, it's, you totally nerd out everything there and everyone there is really knowledgeable because they usually make everything themselves. Wow. So, Max, I have to ask you, where do you go from here? Do you consider yourself more of an artist where you're going to keep creating pieces and one-off commissions? Or have you ever thought about going more manufacturer route where you look to expand your operations? That's funny, man, because right? a lot of people ask me that. And like, what do you see next? And then I'm like, you know what? I got a good thing going just doing the bikes the way I do them. And I really enjoy it. And, you know, there's, you know, we were lucky. I was able to, to make a few bucks um, early on from a few bikes and we, and my, my wife does, does all right. And that's the key for anyone who wants to build motorcycles, make sure your wife's got a good job. And <laughs> that's yes. like, and, and, Jake's all set. Check. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, she has health insurance and that whole bit. So it allows me a little bit of freedom to go play, but you know, we were able to, you know, the, to buy a rental house and, you know, you know, fingers crossed, we'll be able to sell that. And so, you know, I'm like, don't try and make a ton of money building bikes just enjoy that part and like you can focus on a few other things to to fill in the blanks um but you know I've, it's it, it is possible to make decent money building bikes but you have to build them from scratch and you know you have to build everything because it's you know i look at like uh, arch motorcycles keanu reeves company is just yep. just down the street um you know his bikes are you know they might be what 80 grand or something like that for i'm sure they go up from there but i mean they cost a ton to make you know all the machines that make them but if you're just a guy in your shop you know, you buy the materials and you make it. The bikes aren't that expensive to make. They just take a lot of time. Right. They're just pay, basically paying for your time and talent at that point is, is, the, yeah. is the big part of it. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, you know, I was like, you know what? This, this kind of works. I, I enjoy what I'm doing and I enjoy, like, the, you know, the finished product. And, and yeah, and the other, the other nice thing is that being into motorcycles, you know, all of my toys are business expenses. So, you know, I mean, you <laughs> get yourself in trouble pretty quick with that. But I finally started selling some of them. Before I let you go, is there any other stories that you'd you'd really like to tell, share with anybody? Oh man, I wish wish I'd had that question. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's like someone's like expecting you to say something really profound. No, or no, we can but, uh, we can cut it in. It's no big deal. I just wanted to before we go, I want to see if there's anything. If you had any interesting stories? You know, I can't come. Uh, there's nothing that comes up off the top of my head. But um, what's your uh, let's see, what's your closest near death experience? Any good story around? Oh that? man. Yeah, you, I, he already I, told honestly, us about it on Bonneville. Well, <laughs> he walked you know, away I mean, from that, that. That was a calculated near-death thing. I mean, I honestly, there's been there's been so many. I mean, I've <laughs> I, I've, I've downplayed so many to my wife too. You know, I mean, I remember the last time I was you coming back. Got, on the I, record. <laughs> you know, I think she she slowly gets the real story afterwards. 
you know, but I was, I was, I was like, yeah, you know, can you just come pick me up at Marina Del Rey hospital? I just, you know, I just, you know, I just took a little tumble. I'm good though. I'm good. Don't worry about it. And then she finds out later, like, yeah, you were like sliding down the freeway in traffic, <laughs> like 70 miles an hour, like somehow didn't get run over. Um, but yeah, it, it's enough where now it's not that I don't ride on the road. I'll ride to, to get places, but I don't, you know, ride fast. Like when I first moved here from New York, it was seeing these roads that they have out here. It's incredible. I mean, you can just go and it's like there's no one really monitoring them you can just like the uh, like the roads up in malibu or angeles crest and um yeah i've had enough close calls there where i'm like i finally looked at myself like what are you doing like you you got okay. like things are good things are going pretty good for you right now like you're, you're gonna and you've, you've been in a bad crash before so well mortality uh, yeah, now, sneaks up on you as you grow up especially i know you have a new kid and that seeing oh, your yeah. replacement is a great reminder <laughs> of mortality Yes. Yes. And yeah, I mean, you know, also I had uh, one bad crash that, you know, got me into building bikes and that was the first time I realized there's any real consequence to, to what I was doing. And, um, and now, so yeah, now we'll still ride on the track. And, um, actually I got a friend of mine, he, he builds bikes and he was, he's from South Africa and is also like a Red Bull sponsored, like crazy jet skier and like big waves. <laughs> it's like, so like he's trying to get me into doing that. And I mean, you can find a way to make anything dangerous, but yeah, a I'm, custom I'm, jet ski for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, just saying jet ski, it's like the most frivolous thing anyone can ever own. But anyway, um, I want to see a fully so, exposed tube frame has in Jake, waterworks. It's jet still, ski. It still has to float, guys. Okay. <laughs> yeah, still yeah. got to be able to float. We talked about function earlier. Max, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, hey, really my appreciate pleasure, it. Man. I have such great respect for artisans like you. And uh, thanks for sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you so much. All right. You take care of yourself. Uh, you too, guys. Yeah, boy. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Max. Obviously, we're going to post it. Check this link in the show notes. Some yeah, of the if most... you haven't seen any of his bikes and his creations, you got to go check him out. It is just, it, they are works of art, functional works of art. It's amazing. And I kind of relate to his story that he told. Uh, well, before I tell the story, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's take a minute here to talk to our sponsor, Oberk Car Care. Oberk is a Midwest manufacturer of polishing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the experts that use the product as well as formulate it. Oberk products are designed to decimate swirls, holograms, and oxidation on your vehicle's paint, any vehicle, any paint type, they made it to work. And right now, Oberk is offering 20% off any order online with the code OVERCREST. Now, this discount code is good not only on OberkCarCare.com, but also on CarSuppliesWarehouse.com and even on DetailedImage.com. All of the top places to get your compounds and detailing supplies online and check them out. All right, so... There was a so this is this whole journey for me has been hard. What you know, journey? Just with the all, trying to do this car stuff, the podcast, the photography, the writing, the filmmaking. It's it's all of your career. <laughs> just yeah, the last fifteen years have been hard. You know, we yeah. started the photography business, and um, especially financially, there's there's no money in this. Right. As far it's just pure passion and pure love. And I I was talking to my my grandfather, and this Max made me think of this when he said he was talking about his father is I, I was talking to him and I said, Grandpa, I can't, I cannot, I can't do this anymore. This is probably two years ago. Mm -hmm. So I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't keep doing this. I've got two kids now. I, I need to be more responsible. I cannot do this. And he looked me in the eye. He said, do not quit. He says, my biggest regret in life is not taking more risks. Mm. And I, obviously, I didn't quit. I'm still here. We're hanging out, right? I was going to say, and wasn't that right after you started the podcast with me? It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've had it up to here, Grandpa. <laughs> yeah, Jake guy is driving me crazy. You just won't show up on time. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, and it is still hard. But I yeah. think back to those moments when he said, don't give up. Keep trying. If this really matters to you, don't give up. Yeah. And uh, I'm lucky I have my wife, Jessie, who, you know, I... Basically, we did the photography company together, and then she took it over. And now she is the main breadwinner in this, you know. And um, she's an amazing photographer. She's just she's amazing, and she does such a great job, kind of like filling in the gaps. Because you know, I'll make like it'll be like a great month, and then the next month it's like zero dollars. And right. you know, having her working too really really helps. Uh, like you said, have a have a wife that makes a little bit of money always always helps as well. But um, yeah, it was probably two years ago. I was done. I was completely I done. I was I was gonna just 
hang it up. I was like, I'll figure out something else to do. I'll write copy for yeah. from for some stupid medical company or <laughs> I'll go back and be a sales manager at some shitty company and sell some shitty widget. You know, I was yeah. done. But he, his biggest regret in life is not taking more risks because, and then I thought to myself, what do I want to be able to impart on my kids? What What do I want to be able to give them as a life lesson? Do I want them, their life lesson to be, well, dad, dad quit following what he loves so he could, you know, make, make these or sell these shitty widgets or whatever. Does, do, I want, do I want them to know the lesson to be don't follow your dreams? It's too hard. Right. So here I am following my dreams. Oh, 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 oh,